Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are covering Chapter 4 of Peace. It's the third recap that we're doing. This is going to be pages 219 to 232 in the Orb 2012 edition. This section features the return of Stuart Blaine and a lot of loose ends getting tied up and maybe creating more loose ends, which is a poor metaphor, but it feels like it's what happens here. So let's get into it and uh, get a little confused here. And this episode, we're actually going to cover two sections. Uh, One of them is 12 pages long, and the other is only half a page. And that's actually the one that we start with. It doesn't pick up with the librarian. It doesn't even pick up with that time of Weir's life. Rather, we are at some point in between Weir at 45 and Weir's stroke. This is sometime after he's become president of the company. He's in his office. He's having a meeting with an advertising man. This is Bill Batten. We've actually been here before, or at least in a meeting like it, back in Chapter 3. Their conversation barely gets started, though, before Weir's secretary opens the door to interrupt them to say that there is someone else here to see him, and it's someone that she wants Weir to either see now or to send away because she does not want him waiting around the office. We aren't going to learn who this is, at least not here, but she describes him as a small man covered with hair. And that's it. That's, that's the section. Right. We've met this man before. Not the hairy man, the advertising man uh, back in chapter three. He's the one who, you know, at least in my reading here, pitched the mechanical elephant, the the mini circus to Weir as an ad campaign. Uh, And we'd have to assume, Glenn, as you pointed out, that this scene takes place while Weir is the president of the orange juice factory. But based on his conversation with the librarian, we know that Weir feels like he's a nobody and that he's really not done anything or achieved anything based on his own merit. And we know that he sort of inherited this position as president of the orange juice factory. So that feeling, that that bit of conversation, that emptiness he feels as a middle-aged man, I think carries over to the scene in, in a, I don't know, in a strange way. Uh, I don't know. Wolf sometimes doesn't quite carry emotions through or make emotions the foreground of what he's writing. But if you pay close attention, there there are threads that kind of run through what's going on. And I think this is one of those moments where we can feel or look to see the emphasis on, on Weir's lack of achievements and sort of just inheriting his way through through life. The old man Weir, who's recovering from the stroke and who is writing this book for us, is certainly an emotionally broken man reflecting back on his life. And we're seeing him at various stages, I, I think, in in becoming that person. But the, the breaking clearly starts on his fifth birthday when a kid who's attending that birthday party is gravely injured and dies a few years later and then carries on with Weir's parents abandoning him leaving town, leaving the country because they don't feel like dealing with the social ramifications of the death of this young boy. So yeah, I mean, I think Weir has been broken in various ways and down on himself in various ways his entire life. And we're getting glimpses of of that, snapshots of that. Right. But he, he carries on and he's also not a good person. So like, it's, it's hard to, for us, I think, as readers to feel a lot of sympathy for Weir while Wolf is trying to generate a sympathetic portrait of this character. It's, 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 it's really, 
I mean, we've said it before. We'll say it again. This book is a is a genuine masterpiece of American literature. I will refrain from commenting on the small man with covered hair, but I will say this. We've seen a dog boy show up in the last chapter on two separate occasions, uh, once in a dream with Weir. And once at the circus, Smart ends up at when he's trying to save that child who's taking too much hair tonic. So I don't know. Maybe this is related somehow to all of that. I'm sure we'll find out more. As we've noted, Wolf puts these anchor points in chapters, something that seems out of context that sort of informs what the next chapter is about. My gut is that this is one of those. Okay. Well, that's that section. So we'll we'll carry on here. And now we are back at age 45. We are back in the storyline with the lusty lawyer and also the librarian. It is now the morning after the date with the librarian. And in fact, we're going to pick up with her right away, except that also right away, Weir gives us two digressions. And I think it will be easier to isolate those and talk about them right now before we actually get back to the narrative and then have to interrupt it again. So the first of these is brief. Weir explains that he wakes up at six on weekdays, and so he really likes to sleep in on Saturdays, which it is now, so I guess we know that the date was on a Friday evening. Anyway, the deal with this early wake-up is that it is because he has to get to work earlier than the conventional 9 a.m., which was so that the juice factory could stagger vehicle traffic. Or at least, that's the reason that was given. That's the, the public reason for changing the report to work time. And we realizes that this would actually work a lot better if they had a later starting time rather than an early starting time. But then he also realizes that the real reason for this shift in hours is so that the bosses at the level above him, uh, but still below the central office, benefit from this early shift by getting to go home earlier, but then also allowing themselves to come in later than the start time without getting caught by their bosses. Because even if they arrive half an hour or an hour late, they will still be at their desk when their bosses get in. And uh, I love this digression. I have to say that this totally brought me back to for lesson. Also, it's hilarious to see Wolf having a character think of six as early when Wolf himself at age 45 basically never slept that late. <laughs> right. He, he was up writing at yeah. this point. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so now on to the longer digression, this one about dreams. And, and this one I actually think we should just read. And if you want to follow along, if you're not driving or, or bench pressing, this is on page 220 of the Orb Edition. When we are asleep, so it seems to me, we sleep surrounded by all the years. I have imagined, sleeping, that I heard the footsteps of the long dead. I have held conversations with them, and with the blank-faced people I was yet to meet, conversations that seemed of unbearable poignancy, though when I woke I could remember only a few words, and those not words that possessed, waking, any emotional significance to me. It is said that this is because content is divorced from emotion in sleep, as though the sleeping mind read two books at once, one of tears and lust and laughter, the other of words and phrases picked up from old newspapers, from grimy handbills blowing along the street, and conversations overheard in barber shops and bars, and the banalities of radio. I think, rather, that we have forgotten on waking what the words have meant to us, or have not learned as yet what they will mean. But the worst thing is to wake and remember that we have been talking to the dead, having never thought to hear that voice again, having never any expectation of hearing it again before we ourselves are gone. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful passage, first of all, 
but it's it's jam packed full of uh, I guess ideas. Uh, at the meta level, I guess we should just note that what this passage does is alert us as readers to the idea that dreams might carry some significance in this novel, <laughs> as they do in nearly every novel where they are present. And also maybe that what Weir is pointing us to is twofold. Um, first, that dreams carry a significance that we cannot quite grasp. You know, dreams are I don't know, mental events where the signifiers don't align with sentiments. And the second is that maybe there's a prophetic sensibility to dreams. They wrap the past and the future around us so that we meet those who we have not met yet and speak to those who have died. And this passage makes me very curious about whether we should read everyone that Weir has mentioned in a dream as being dead. And this is something that maybe we'll we'll have to take up in our either the discussion of this chapter or our, our final discussion when we can kind of catalog uh, where dreams show up in this novel. Right. I think that will probably be easier to do all the way at the end because, of course, that will be the moment in which we take some time to go back and reread the entire novel <laughs> equipped with uh, you know all the knowledge that we've gained along the way. And we'll certainly make it easier to catalog that. But uh, I mean, that actually has kind of a sixth sense, you know, shock moment uh, feel to it. Uh, I mean, it's not quite that, you know, the stakes are not quite that high, but it certainly will feel that way if that turns out to be true. It, it certainly will. I mean, I, immediately what comes to mind is the the dream that I just mentioned with the with the dog boy and, and Weir's father. Like, we know that Weir's mother has died, and we know that she outlived his father, uh, but we don't know anything about what happened to his father. And so that's a, that's a, a mystery that still hangs over the book. Uh, all we get is this kind of dream. I want to look at some of the work stuff that we get in this section as well. And I guess there's really only one thing I want to point out here. And it's that the juice factory has brought uh, maybe a population boom to Cashinsville. So much so that management has had to solve township problems, like civic problems, like morning traffic. So that's a big deal. I mean, this, this juice factory is Cashinsville sort of at this point. But also, as you point out, Glenn, yeah, we are right back into Wolf's period of cynicism, of that that cynical view of the managerial class. And we're going to get even more of that as this chapter and this section continues. Yeah, certainly that comes through full force here in, in thinking about the management. But I think you're also right to to point out the way in which quietly in the description of you know why he has to get up so early to go to work is the way that, yeah, the the business, right? The juice factory is really the town. There has been this population boom. I mean, that's clearly why the golds have shown up. And we'll we'll see in some other cases in this chapter as well, where the town has gone through changes, I think many of which can actually be demonstrated to have originated from the success of the juice factory. And actually, we're going to get even more of those in chapter five as well. But I think that the idea that you know a business can dominate the town's civic life and presumably then also the town's government is something also that Wolf is profoundly uncomfortable with and also uh, just has all the hallmarks of a hard-boiled detective story. And I would definitely read a hard-boiled <laughs> detective story that takes place in Cashinsville. Yeah, that would be awesome. I was in this really small town on Lake Superior with maybe like 30 uh, citizens. And all I could imagine up there was like writing a hard-boiled detective novel set in that town because like, there's nobody there. Anyway, that's just us imagining about settings. Uh, 
<laughs> Which is, I guess, something that happens once in a while. Uh, yeah, well, maybe more than once in a little while. I hope nobody's <laughs> keeping track at home. But no, setting <laughs> setting is what I'm here for, for sure. But but there is actually a narrative here that we, we can pick up with again now. It is the morning after the date with the librarian, and Weir is woken up by the ringing phone. It turns out to be the librarian, and because this is a phone conversation before caller ID, she has to announce herself. And so here, finally, three episodes into this chapter, we learn her name, and it is Lois. Lois Arbuthnot, or it might actually be Arbuthno, perhaps, but it's clearly a, a French name. Uh, and it is also a name that we have encountered before, if only briefly and without any context. At any rate, the deal is this— even though it is only the morning after their date, she's been busy while Weir has been sleeping. She's got a lead on the lusty lawyer, though it is still going to take some time. But more importantly, she has arranged to buy Kate Boyne's diary from Mr. Gold, and he says that they can come by and pick it up anytime. There is some real awkwardness here because Weir is still waking up and maybe also just a little obtuse. And so he doesn't quite realize that he's actually being invited on an adventure, right? That he's being included in this go to the bookstore and get the book business. But he does get his act together and arranges to meet her outside the library at one, which is when it closes, and then they can go get it. And then Lois adds that afterwards, they can go to her place for dinner. But that is actually all that we're going to get of Lois in this section, because there's another adventure, a kind of solo quest that Weir is going to have before this one, before going to the bookshop, which we will take up next. Weir is being invited on an adventure by Lois Arbuthnot, uh, but not the one that we saw mentioned in an earlier section of chapter three. And this is where she's mentioned the first time. Uh, I'm going to read it. This is on page 151 of the Orb 2012 edition here. So here's the text. When Julius Smart bought the store, he threw a great deal out, moved a great deal more into a back room Mr. Bledsoe had fitted up as a sitting room, and moved more still, so I learned when Smart married my aunt, into a building south of town, that is, on the other bank of the Kanakesi, only a few miles from the spot where, a long time afterward, Lois Arbuthnot and I searched for buried treasure. So, I mean... Come on, that, like that's that's the anchor from uh, chapter three that leads us into this moment into chapter four. Now, I want to point out here also that this is a chapter called Gold, and if we've been reading carefully, we've met a character named Louis Gold. We've had two references to the great kings of France named Louis. Both of those names had associations with gold, a golden era, or the Sun King, and now we're meeting a character named Lois which is rooted etymologically in the same name as Louis. And she's associated with Barry Treasure, which I always associate with gold. And even though we can kind of easily make these surface level observations about the text, it seems like a lot to keep track of and make sense of. Like, I'm not sure quite what to make of it. And there is also just the business with the alliteration, right? I mean, just, you know, okay, so the names Louis, Louis, 
Louis again, I guess, Lois. We've also got the lusty lawyer. We've got librarian. It just seems like this chapter could have been called L as as well. So yeah, it is so much to keep track of, but it's very clear that Wolf is playing with these names here. And uh, also it really, I mean, just this, this tease about Lois that we got back in chapter three, which, you know, now that we make that connection because we've got her name, I mean, we realize, or at least I guess we assume that we're going to have to get something about this adventure with buried treasure. And so this all also feels a little bit like, uh, I don't know, like it's 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 Kaiser Soze, right? Like this is the usual suspects in some sense that, you know, the, the secret to the story that's being told is what's on the bulletin board behind you. <laughs> right. It's insane. And once we get to the episode involving the buried treasure, I don't think we're going to get any more clarity about who, who Lois is or, I don't know. It's, it's... Like I said, this chapter brings a lot of loose threads together, but then somehow creates even more loose threads out of them. Um, but since we've been keeping track of names in this chapter, I want to keep a little bit track of Lois's here. Lois is a name that could mean like glorious or great warrior, or it could even mean desirable. Uh, Arbuthnot is, I think, a Scottish name, uh, maybe of French origin as well. It could mean healing stream. There's a, f- a famous figure in the first half of the 18th century named John Arbuthnot that was like friends with Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift, uh, an inspiration for some characters there. Also a Colonel Arbuthnot in the Orient Express, the Agatha Christie novel. I don't quite know what Wolf is doing with these names. Once again, I think he's really highlighting just how many places in the world, how many people have emigrated to America and how many people from different areas have found their way to to Cashinsville. It's more part of that, that theme that no one is original to America, except for those who are now mysteriously absent. Yeah, I see where this is actually a Scottish name rather than French. Uh, I just take anything that is going to end in an OT as being French. And uh, it turns out yeah, the Scottish name should have a double T. And so that's where I was I was tricked. But it was not actually, I suppose, a thought that I, I had. I think I've just always assumed that that was a, a French name, especially realizing, you know, we're in the we're in the Midwest, right? This is uh, was all, you know, explored by, by French people long before English speaking people got there as well. So uh, yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad to glad to know that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I don't know, it is what it is. But as you pointed out, Weir is about to go on a solo side quest here. Right. So while he was talking with Lois, it occurred to Weir that rather than wait for Interlibrary Loan to track down a copy of a rare book, he could just go and look at the copy he already knows about, which is to say, the copy that Stuart Blaine has. Weir decides that the best course of action is to just show up at Blaine's house unannounced. That is going to work, so in that sense, it is the right choice. But there is, of course, going to be a brief misadventure first. Weir drives over to Stuart Blaine's house, uh, the white mansion where he had dinner back in Chapter 2, where Doherty told him stories. And this gives us a really, really nice description of downtown Cashinsville. Still has brick roads and no curbs or sidewalks. It's got front yards just at the same level as the street. And then there are also the occasional posts for uh, tying up horses. And it's all very quaint, but Weir actually feels very weird driving a 1950s car on these old streets, though after a while he decides that it's really just that he thinks he should be in an older, antiquated style of car, the style of car that was around when he was a child. Well, when he arrives at Blaine's mansion, he discovers that it's not there. 
it's been torn down and it's been replaced by six smaller houses. And Weir does something now that I think would just absolutely horrify us today, which is that he parks his car and rings the doorbell of one of these houses to just ask the inhabitants if they know where Stuart Blaine lives now. Uh, This really creeped me out in ways that it certainly would not have in 1975 when this book was published, or possibly even (laughs) in the 1990s. But wow, that just really uh, just seemed creepy. Seemed like this was obviously going to turn into a horror story at this moment. But that's not what's happening here. But of course, also the people who live here do not know where Stuart Blaine lives now. In fact, they don't even know who Stuart Blaine is. But Weir discovers that living here now is the family of a draftsman at the plant. This is someone Weir knows obliquely because they're both in the engineering division of the business. And this, I think, really cements the image, right, that the opulence of Weir's youth is gone and has been replaced by a kind of mass-produced middle-classness here, even in the heart of Cashinsville's wealth. It's kind of a strange side adventure, though, because it's not really going to matter to the plot. This is literally a a dead end here. Yeah, I want to zoom in here on this passage about automobile culture in Cashinsville, because it's like a third of what... (laughs) You know, the section that you just recapped. And Weir really goes to pains here to detail how the roads aren't really designed for cars. But then Weir also points out that he's had a car since his third year at college and brought it home with him. We know that Weir started working at the juice factory in college. So we know that it was already up and running by the time he had gone to college. Um, And we also know that Weir's had more cars since then. This could just be read as, as as kind of more of that interest that Weir has in material culture that has been a big part of this novel, particularly chapter two, where we also learn that Aunt Olivia was, was run down uh, by a car. And uh, I'm not suggesting here that Weir has run down Aunt Olivia or that like he's responsible for her death, but I Weir does kind of like cars. He likes automobiles and he's kind of into the car culture, even though he thinks about where it came from. But we know, you know, having read a lot of Wolf's interviews and stuff like that, that Wolf thinks that car culture is a bit of a, a travesty in civilization and for civilization. That's um, really destroyed a lot of the world. And I think we see Wolf kind of coming through this in the way he talks about the changing of the drive times uh, for work, changing work time to suit the automobiles on the road, how uh, people are kind of led around by their need to get to a place in a car more than being in real control of the tool. In fact, the car running out of control is what ostensibly killed Aunt Olivia. So I guess all of that's to say is that we can't really conflate Wolf and Weir. And I think readers have been tempted to do that in this novel in particular. Weir is very different than Wolf, I think, is and has very different opinions than Wolf does. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, also this business with cars or Wolf's attitudes about cars uh, and their dominance of American transportation is a big part of For Lesson. Uh, also, the short story Car Sinister, which of course we did like five <laughs> years ago now, and I think remains our, our shortest episode. That might not literally be true, but uh, is certainly a contender for it. But I do think that, you know, the 1950s, I mean, this is really the you know start of the dominance of the automobile in 
American life this way. Certainly, you know, we think about the car styles of the 1950s in this really romantic way. Uh, This is when we start to get pop songs that are actually about and sometimes even addressed to cars, right? It's the, you know, the cars part of the girls in cars format of American pop music in the 50s and 60s (laughs) and into the 70s as well. And, you know, so one wonders, you know, thinking about Gene Wolfe, you know, coming back from the Korean War, starting out his life as an adult, may also actually have found himself interested in and participating in car culture in this way, especially as someone with an engineering mindset and someone who's just been in combat as well. But, you know, perhaps then 20 years later, by the time of writing this, is having different different thoughts about it. So I think it's a great way to unpack this this paragraph here to see perhaps Wolf's own journey with American car culture. Yeah. And we we also get the sense that Weir and Weir's house, I mean, this mansion that he built, uh, is really an attempt to preserve what he wishes were still in the world. Like, you know, we learned that Weir hasn't driven around anywhere near Blaine's house for at least eight years, which could have been longer than that. We don't know how long ago this Blaine's house was torn down. We just know that these people moved in eight years ago. And Weir is really connected to his memory of this time with Aunt Olivia to the degree that he's shocked when something changes in Cashinsville, particularly when that change destroys something from that time period. But I think you're also right to point out, Glenn, that this passage is really about the replacement of opulence with, you know, this cookie cutter middle-class home division and really how, again, the factory is responsible for creating this new reality, the factory that we're now runs. I mean, this is also the exact plot of It's a Wonderful Life, which I've brought up before, (laughs) except that there's an orange juice plant built in the town instead of like casinos and dens of vice. No, that's a great observation. I mean, it is very much the same thing. I'm also really interested in the fact that Weir didn't know that this had happened. I mean, I think when we went to this house in chapter two, I had this impression that the house was on the outskirts of town. I mean, because there's a hostler and horses and so on, but it's really not, or at least it's not anymore. Perhaps it was in chapter two, you know, when we were in the present of chapter two, but here it's really described as being just really on the other side of downtown from Weir's own family home and 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 then Olivia's house, you know, down the street from there, such that it must be near the library, which you know we are reading as being having been Olivia's house, must be near Gold's bookstore, which we're told Weir goes to, and so on. But yet somehow he's still unaware that actually this big house has been torn down and it's been turned into smaller houses. He's not driven by this area before, walked by it. He's not read about this in the newspaper. That actually strikes me as really strange. Yeah, I know. It's it's super bizarre and it doesn't quite line up with anything we know about reality. But Weir lives in his own world, as we know. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go find Stuart Blaine right now. He's in the phone book, of course, living now on what used to be a farm outside of town. Uh, this is actually a plot of land that Weir went by once on the way to the Lawrence farm during the business with the Chinese egg. The house is smaller than the mansion. It is a, a two-story Tudor house. It's still large, though, but the glory of the mansion is gone. And, and glory, that's uh, Weir's word. I want to be clear about that. Of course, it has been almost 40 years since that dinner in Chapter 2, and a lot has changed. 
For one, Stuart Blaine is old, and he's also in poor health, and usually he doesn't see visitors. But Weir sends in his card, and he writes on it, Olivia Weir's nephew, uh, about the lusty lawyer. And a little while later, then, he's admitted by the housekeeper. Blaine is in a wheelchair, and he's got a beard now. Now, Weir's going to learn later that this is to conceal a scar from an operation. But at any rate, Weir thinks he looks like a mad king, which is just a brilliant simile. And it may also turn out to be true, in a matter of speaking. Blaine doesn't remember Weir's name. He thinks it might be Jimmy. And he also remembers bribing him to go to bed early so that he could be alone with Olivia. But Weir does not remember this. And in fact, he's certain that it never actually happened. So on the surface, it looks as if Blaine has fallen to a lower station, lost some of his wealth. Certainly he's in declining health. But in fact, the opposite is true, at least as far as the wealth is concerned. He is wealthier now than he's ever been. And he's going to tell us how. During the Great Depression, banks met one of two fates. Uh, They went under or they thrived. And Blaine's bank thrived, uh, though they did actually have to close their doors twice. But because of the Depression, the bank was able to purchase a lot of property in the area. These were farms that people couldn't make mortgage payments on anymore, more or less. And Blaine's bank purchased them and essentially turned itself, or at least in part, into a kind of local or or regional agribusiness. But then the real boom happened when Julia Smart's juice factory got going because Blaine was able to become a massive supplier of potatoes. And so I guess we can infer here that the idea is that Julius was using chemistry, maybe it's actually alchemy, right, uh, in order to make orange juice out of potatoes. But anyway, the, the point is that Blaine is even richer now, but he sold the mansion during the Depression because it wasn't good for bankers to appear so rich anymore. Um, and actually, just thinking about the math of that, it actually means this happened really 20 years ago, and we didn't know about that sale, which I... I really just feel is quite strange. But uh, that's a digression. And so the point is that it turned out, actually, for Blaine to be living you know, this way, it turned out to be cheaper to be living this way, uh, that that ostentation wasn't saving him any money, and it also never got him anywhere with Olivia either. And then at this point, Blaine goes on a bit of a monologue about how being rich is a kind of art form. And even though he could be generous with his wealth, It is better not to do that. It's better not to be generous. It's better to be stingy and miserly. Also, we learn here that when he dies, he's going to use his wealth to create a a private library for his books at the university. Uh, Possibly, this is the university that Professor Peacock worked at, though it might also be Blaine's alma mater, though those also might be the same place. Uh, Totally not clear here. But at any rate, Blaine seems to me in this monologue here rather like a monster at this point. Oh, oh, definitely. He is the worst example of the managerial class, maybe even an example of like the American ruling class that I think Wolf is conjuring up. Even this comparison to King Lear, the Mad King, is meant to evoke in us this image of just a wealthy old kook, except, you know, King Lear's a tragedy. Blaine is sitting in his chair and cackling about the money he's made and just in all the ways he's able to withhold it from everyone around him. What's of interest to me, though, is that Blaine's beard is covering a scar on his throat. And I have to wonder what kind of operation he received that left a big enough scar on his throat, you know, such a a disfiguring scar that he would want to cover it up. 
even more strange is that this passage about how Weir learns that Blaine received this scar from an operation indicates to me that Weir continues to visit Blaine after this visit, or they become visitors. And we know that Weir admires Blaine or has admired him from boyhood to the degree that the entranceway to his house is modeled after Blaine's and that he was maybe not the favorite suitor, but the one most admired. And it's just bad. You know, Weir's, Blaine is just the, the worst, as you as you pointed out. Yeah, that all made more sense to me when we thought of Stuart Blaine as this figure that Weir knew when he was eight. And and then never really had anything to do with again because uh, Olivia didn't marry him, right? Stopped dating him, married somebody else, didn't marry him. And so he's out. But then now we discover that Weir has you know met Blaine again, has heard the same speech that we've just read and still admires him. It is very strange. Yeah, we can kind of also add this passage to... I don't know, our long-running tally of passages of Americana that are found in, in this novel. I mean, everything about the Depression here, which is from Blaine's perspective, uh, just is brutal, as we've been saying, especially if you know your grandparents were children during the Depression and they told you about it. Um, their parents lived through it fully, as Weir must have. Weir acts as though de- the Depression was not like a real thing that affected him. Maybe that his family lost all their money then, but he still inherited enough wealth to buy this library book. But Blaine in this section is so proud of himself and is basically willing to turn the whole town, the land in the town, into a potato farm that supplies the factory. But like just a few pages ago, we got a description of Kate coming over from Ireland Due to the potato famine. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just uh, it's just uh, mind-boggling. Like, Wolf is so good at threading this stuff together and, and making it seem like everything is so distinct, right? That passage about Kate coming over from Ireland due to the potato famine is about a diary that she had uh, that was part of a context of a date. And so you don't really categorize it in the same way or you don't put it in the same container that you would with Blaine talking about turning this whole town into a potato farm and the dangers of that. I think also pertinent for us reading this in in 2022 as well is that our own society, our present society has just gone through something that lives up to part of Blaine's description here. This uh, idea that in the Depression, uh, when he says banks either went bust or they did better than they've ever done. Mine did better than we've ever done. I mean, that's that's been the story of American businesses uh, since the pandemic, during, you know, since the start of the pandemic, during the pandemic as as well, right? And I think also not even thinking of, of that in terms of even just the owner class, but thinking in terms of people with jobs, right? That we've seen that you know, lots and lots and lots of people lost their jobs or uh, were negatively affected in their jobs in, in some way, you know, reduced hours, uh, worse working conditions and that sort of thing. Or people have gotten huge raises and have had better working conditions and that sort of thing, right? That there's no real middle road here. But Blaine you know, clearly is the one who's navigating this chaos, right? He's someone, because of his wealth and his position, has control over things and uses it to exploit people. He could have kept his bank in the same very well off position it already was and allowed people to get their farms back and chose not to do that so that he could have more money than he had when what he had was already 
more than enough and perhaps more than most people should have right and it's i it, it feels you know since now that we have lived through that this is something that has affected us personally here on the show but of course also friends and family neighbors and so on and our just our society at large boy it just it is hard not to see blaine as a monster there's another thing i want to point out here about this passage and and it's this that we're who as a boy at least was entertained by Doherty, writes this of him now. He says that Doherty was lax and lazy and doubtless drunken as he's imagining Blaine firing his staff and adding causes that just were not present in in what we witnessed in the text. And it's hard for me to consider just when it was that Weir would have revised his opinion of Doherty since that night having dinner at Blaine's house. Yeah, that's totally not what we saw in chapter two. Doherty was great. Doherty was there at work while the family he works for is enjoying a, a, a nice dinner. So he's working quite late, right? It's dinner time and is taking time out of putting the barn together for the, the night to talk to this kid. And he's actually going to let this kid you know, ride some horses and so on, all of which are keeping him at work longer than he would otherwise have to be at work. That's the opposite of everything you just said. Weir is changing the past kind of for us, our our uh, our understanding of the past. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's something we're going to have to keep our eye on. I just also want to point out in this section on a craft level, just how much Weir is hammering home to us that Blaine is not a reliable source of information. Weir is essentially letting us know that anything Blaine says will need to be corroborated by Weir himself. Like Weir makes himself the authority, well, which is an author's job, to the reader here, if we're to consider what Blaine says to be true. We'll see why these distinctions matter in a little bit, but I want to highlight the way in which Weir slips in the affair of the Chinese egg. He says that it was to be McAfee's 41st birthday present. And that's going to matter, as I said, in a minute. But the other thing that we can see here that totally discredits Blaine is that Blaine is insisting on calling Alden Jimmy. Um, Now, Jimmy is a diminutive of James, and it's also what McAfee's first name was, as far as we know. So this is all pretty weird, and we've barely even started with this visit. Yeah, there are a few other things that Blaine says that we should really take stock of, I think, before we get to the real reason that we're here, which is to say the lusty lawyer. Uh, The first is that Blaine says that he had proposed to Olivia, but she turned him down. And so he never married anyone. But he does revel in the fact that Jimmy McAfee also didn't get to marry her. Uh, It seems like Blaine felt really competitive about that, but actually didn't care about Professor Peacock at all. And Blaine also remembers how Olivia bought the egg, right, as you say, but then had to give it to McAfee as a present. But yeah, Blaine's details here are all wrong. He thinks the egg is from India. He thinks McAfee's name is Roscoe and not Jimmy. And so then it's strange that he's been calling Weir Jimmy the whole time. And he also thinks this gift was for Christmas and not for uh, McAfee's uh, birthday here. But I will say, though, that still, this is actually a plainer explanation about what happened with the egg than we got from Weir himself (laughs) in Chapter 3, who was so oblique and convoluted about it that I think we had actually something of an argument about that. But uh, another loose end here is that Blaine mentions this business with having purchased the town from the Iroquois. Though this is the first time that they've been given a specific name and not just been labeled Indians. But the deal is that his ancestors didn't purchase the land, they leased it. 
and it was an indefinite lease that would only expire so long as there were no male heirs in the Blaine family. Now, of course, that means that when Stuart Blaine dies, the town is technically going to revert to the property of the Iroquois. Except, of course, you know, not really, right? This is just kind of a dark joke about how they swindled the Iroquois out of this land. And then finally, and this is really quite exciting, we get a return to Julius Smart's ghost story from chapter three. Uh, this, for me, is actually really the main attraction in this this part of the the story, because we finally get the real ending of this ghost story. Right? We discover now, we learn now what Julius found in the locked bedroom. So when Tilly died and Julius was living there alone, he discovered that there was no key to that door. So he did the sensible thing and went out and got a crowbar. And what he found inside was an open-topped zinc coffin filled up with methanol. And lying in that was a dead woman with a misshapen head and blind eyes. Oh, this was Tilly's wife. But of course, what happened, how she got this way, that's still a mystery. Blaine thinks that she was actually alive the whole time. He thinks that she was living in that locked room and was responsible for all the ghostly stuff that was going on and that Tilly was experimenting on her, you know, something like that. And then when he died, she started drinking the methanol and then just drowned in it. I am skeptical of this. In fact, I don't think that that interpretation is right at all, but I I do suppose it's plausible. Yeah, it's plausible. And I think that, you know, methanol is a good explanation of anything is ghost water, you know, which we had spent some time talking about uh, on, on, on Julia Smart's bed. But I mean, here's what's going on. Like Weir corroborates Blaine's telling of this story. Weir says that, quote, for years I have carried a vivid memory, though I never saw it, of the body as it must have looked in its open-topped, methanol-filled zinc coffin, of the soft tissues, and the misshapen head with its blind eyes and open mouth and floating hair. This is such a vivid horror image. But the strange thing to me about this passage, the, the thing that makes me most uneasy, is that parenthetical phrase that comes after the word memory, though I never saw it. I mean, it feels really superfluous to me. And I think without it, we take we're having this vivid memory of this image as meaning that he remembers what his imagination conjured when he heard this story. I'm not sure why Wheeler feels the need to make such a differentiation here, but I'm pointing this out because I think it's important to some passages we'll get later on in this chapter. There's one more thing I think we need to we need to narrate here, uh, and that's to check in with our old friend Mr. Rice Pie, uh, <laughs> or Recipe. Uh, he gets a little bit of a coda here, and I think he gets a little bit more later. But at this point, what we see is we're asking Blaine about Rice Pie, and Blaine says that Rice Pie ran away with twenty five thousand dollars of the bank's money to Guatemala. So yeah, in this moment. Right. We think Rice Pie is a real thief. Right, right. But yeah, as you say, we are going to get more on Recipe later. Uh, we're just going to report back to Lois about what has happened here. So uh, I have some have some things to say, but I will I will save them for that episode. Well, we are nearing the end, actually, of what we're going to be covering on this episode, but we still need to talk books. Blaine has a fireproof vault in his house where he keeps the books that he collects. Uh, also, it's a secret door, so that's pretty cool. I mean, 
Blaine is straight up like a Scooby-Doo villain, maybe somewhere between <laughs> Scooby-Doo and Bond villain here. Now, Blaine does not read any of the books that he collects, of course. This is just a hobby that allows him to become an expert in something and then also to buy and sell as an art in itself. The thing that is interesting about The Lusty Lawyer is that it was published serially, and so in order to get the complete novel as a single bound book, you had to have the individual serialized publications. Uh, You had to have them and then get them bound together yourself. And so there can then be a wide variety of bindings. And this is true of most 19th century books, uh, including Dickens. This is probably something that people have seen if they've ever been to uh, or, you know, a rare books library or, or maybe some kind of uh, exhibit on old books or something like that. And this one is bound in half-calf with uh, beveled boards, and it's in really good condition. It's probably never been read. Uh, If it was read, it's been only read once, Uh, though there is some damage to it just from being old, having been stored in a box in some attic for a long time. And that's really it. Weir reads some passages. Uh, They are terrible. But this section just ends abruptly on one of these passages, and we're actually not going to pick up here next time either. So yeah, it's, it's an abrupt ending. The passage that ends the section is this. Peace pressed the plantation of perfumed pines as a prince in a parable might pamper a princess. The pines, pliant pinnacles, poked the purple empyrean as that princess's pale palms might pat a precious pet. Lady Luella, said Lelowin Lightfoot, then lapsed into a limpid silence. Let's. Lady Luella softly lisped. So it is actually hard to read this out yeah. loud without laughing. You made it you a lot made more it, sympathy for the Inklings here. You made it pretty far. I I was not restraining my own laughter. I was trying to, but I'm not succeeding at it. But no, that was actually well done. Uh, it's a, it's a yeah, it's a hilarious passage. And uh, before I talk about it briefly, I just want to say that the image of the man who's talking a lot about the importance of sons. In a room with a younger man who, you know, who is living in admiration of this other man and has a secret door. Boy, this reminds me of a scene in Fifth Head of Cerberus as well. Uh, the imagery is all kind of consistent between between these two books. But to get back to this passage, what strikes me about it initially, apart from the alliteration of the P sound, is this is where we see the book's title, Peace, in the novel. I I don't think we've come across it before. I also don't know what to make of it, but there you have it. You know, if you've read Amanda Ross, I think you'd feel that this is a pretty credible attempt to mimic her prose style. And as I said before, in our world, at least, Ross never wrote a book called The Lusty Lawyer. Right. And as we carry on in this chapter, we'll find out a little bit more about The Lusty Lawyer. And I I don't want to spoil that for people who are reading along for the first time, but I will uh, have something to say when we get there about uh, about what we learn about the provenance of this book and then... uh, the fact that the word peace, you know, shows up right here in this in this section and, and how we might link those two together, because I think that's a really astute observation, Brandon. There's also one other thing that that seems really out of place here, and that's that the age and condition of this book somehow remind Weir of the painting of his uncle Joe that was found on the third floor of his grandmother's house, whose, you know, protection of of which results in Bobby Black's death, either directly or indirectly. And Weir sniffs the book 
to see if it smells like apples, almost as though he expects the book to have been found at the grandmother's house and is disappointed when the book smells only of dust and and mildew. Like I said, this is another really odd detail thrown in here. Um, But I think we can say for certain on a structural level, Wolf is absolutely making these callbacks on purpose to events earlier in the novel. And it feels so while we're still making our way through this chapter, Wolf is trying to bring a lot of stuff together. And on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you would like to support the network and also check out all of the bonus series that we've been doing on At the Mountains of Madness, the TNG movies, and Swamp Thing, and also just the regularly scheduled episodes that we do, including a long-running series on Gene Wolfe's Letters Home from the Korean War, we would love for you to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Next time, we're going to cover pages 232 to 243 in the Orb 2012 edition. This has us reading up through the line, or my own porch room with the fire, for those of you who are reading along in other editions. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.